Welcome back, everyone. This is the Leading Inclusively Better Work podcast. Uh, you know the drill by now. I'm Denise Hummel, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, who is Scott Miller. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. Denise, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Of course, of course. I'll just give a little bit of an intro, if you don't mind, and then feel free to take it away with anything, with any highlights that you feel that I left out. So Scott is the Executive Vice President of Business Development and Chief Marketing Officer for Franklin Covey. Uh, Scott has been with the company for about 20 years and previously served as Vice President of Business Development and Marketing. His role as EVPN Chief Marketing Officer caps 12 years on the front line, working with thousands of client facilitators across many marketing companies. Scott is also a recent best-selling author of uh, his first book, His Management Mess. By the way, I just love that. So Management um, Mess to Leadership Success. This, this book is so raw and relatable, um, and it contains uh, Scott's 30 most important leadership solutions, each based on a personal story from his career and helpful to any leader or manager who's trying to tackle their mesh, mess and make it a success. So how did I do? I mean, do you, do you feel Flawless. like- Flawless. Really? Okay. Flawless. Okay. All right. I run for Senate, you're on my campaign. <laughs> All right. You got it. You got it. I'll remember that. Um, so I think let's just start with the basics. I mean, why did you write management mess? I mean, what was yeah. that about? Yeah, thanks. I, you know, I just finished my 24th year at Franklin Covey just last week. So it's been an amazing journey. Oh and, you know, Franklin Covey is one of the most famed, respected leadership development firms in the world. And I've been uh, in the firm for, like I said, almost 25 years. I tutored under, under Dr. Covey, who was, of course, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People for 15 years. And I'll tell you, Denise, leadership of people doesn't come naturally to me. I think I'm like a lot of people where I felt like a leader's job was to be charismatic and loud and clear and forceful and accountable. And I don't think everybody is cut out to be a leader of people. I think we all have leadership inside of us, leadership of projects or initiatives, but not everybody should be a leader. But I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people because leadership is hard, right? It's unrelenting. It's unrewarding sometimes. It requires you to move outside your comfort zone and have high courage conversations. So anyway, my entire leadership journey has been sort of proverbial three steps forward and two steps back. So as I preview or you know surveyed all the leadership books out there, hundreds of thousands of them, one was missing, one, and that was mine, which was talking about how messy leadership is. And I don't give license to people to just wallow in their mess, but I, I, I share vulnerably, like you mentioned, raw, relatable stories of things that I struggled with, things that I didn't understand from actually being an expert in a leadership firm. And I think it's why the book has done so well is because it validates, I think, a lot of the struggles that we have, for those of us who are in leadership roles but weren't trained properly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question now. You know that most of our uh, uh, listeners are very, very into the whole inclusion arena. So yes. they are – they are really working on their, their inclusive journey as leaders. What does inclusion have to do with any of this? Well, I think, here's what I would say first. All of us have deeply entrenched paradigms, belief systems, frames of reference, right, that were enculturated in us since birth about people that aren't inside of our group, right? I mean, I'm a 51-year-old white Catholic male from Florida who has a female wife with three kids. And that's generally what my posse looks like, right? And so I think as we mature into be more inclusive leaders, we don't just tolerate, 
we don't just celebrate, but we're advocates for and constantly assessing our own limiting paradigms, our limiting views of what the world looks like, of what success looks like, of what leadership is like. And it's struggling for all of us, is it not? Because to quote Dr. Covey, we tend to see the world not as it is, but as we are. So every leader has to better appreciate that you don't have the full picture. Not The world doesn't look or act or talk like you do necessarily. And the more you can be nimble in your thinking, and not just, like I said, celebrate, but advocate and cherish, revere the differences in people, you'll be an amazing leader. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, if you're always coming things from, you know, coming at things from your own paradigm or from your own way of looking things, you're going to eventually be blindsided, right? You know, I, one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard from a Franklin Covey colleague, and his name is Randy Illig, and he's the leader of our sales performance practice. And he says, you know, most people say, well, I've got 30 years of experience or 28 years of experience. The problem is, for most of us, our 28 years of experience is one year of experience repeated 27 times. Mm-hmm. And so we've always got to be point. reinventing, re- dis- you know, disrupting ourselves, challenging these deeply entrenched paradigms. Even me who talks about it for a living, when I still, at the end of the day, you know, I'm having a dinner party tonight in our house in Salt Lake. Two couples are coming over. They're both very much like me, right? Professional males, the, 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 the wives are by choice, stay-at-home moms, very accomplished, college degreed. But a lot of my friends are like me. A lot of my mm-hmm. employees on the team are like me, and I have to be consciously aware that I should be not necessarily victim to my own unconscious biases. The more I'm aware of them, the more I can address them and move outside them. So there, you know, there are a lot of management books out there. Let's face it, right? Um, I'm, I'm wondering, can you give us a little bit of a, a synopsis of what yeah. sets this book apart yeah. from all those other books? Sure. I think Franklin Covey wrote most of them, by the way. We've got about 50 <laughs> I wouldn't there. be surprised. Yeah. So here's what I did. So across all of our leadership solutions, I sat down with a few colleagues. And over the course of a couple of weeks, we curated all the challenges that we think most leaders of people face. There were hundreds of them, Denise, up on whiteboards in the wall with um, you know, little post-it notes. And... We then organized them and called them down into about 50 that were the most common challenges. But a 50-challenge book seemed like too daunting, not to write, but to read. So we then tightened them up, and we developed 30 of them, like demonstrating humility and providing and seeking feedback and having an abundance mindset and having high-courage conversations and life balance and and uh, you know creating a culture of trust and things like that, very practical you know, easy to implement, but, you know, hard to, to grasp. If you've got some knowledge around them, people can really begin to, you know, practice these new habits. So these 30 challenges aren't rocket science. I share these horrifying stories of how I violated principles left and right, not because I was a criminal or sociopath, because I was just a human being that was trying to do a lot of things, right? Leadership of people next to parenting three boys is the hardest thing I've ever done. Well, okay. So there, there are various parts of this book that, that in, in, intrigue me, you know, uh, they all do, frankly, but there are just, there are a few that there's such an intense crossover with what we do that if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask yes. you a few very specific questions yeah. about those. So one in particular is place the right people in the right roles. And, 
So this is a classic situation, right? Where you have on your team, these individuals and you're wanting to use them for certain things, but the reality is that they have certain strengths that might lend themselves to different types of initiatives. And yet you're constantly trying to put a square peg in a round hole. So when when that happens, then you're not using people within their unique zone of genius, which obviously creates a barrier to inclusion. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think a couple of thoughts. You know, obviously this concept hails from the literary genius and, and business consultant Jim Collins, right? Co-author of Built to Last, author of Good to Great, good friend of mine. I was with Jim at his place in Boulder just a few months ago. And so Jim popularized the idea of, you know, the right people on the bus in the right seats, so to speak. And, and I, I take a little bit further building on Jim's work, which is, you know, you can teach competence. You can't teach character. So, you know, character is a fundamental trait to every colleague, to every marriage, to every relationship. So the first, I think, ticket to the game is having high character. Like I said, you can teach most competent skills. Most people are technically competent and adept at their jobs. Denise, every person I've ever had to terminate, I terminated from a lack of self-awareness their inability to collaborate with others, to communicate, to be abundant, to be interpersonally you know, productive, if you will. So I think the first concept on this is right people in the right roles. Make sure you have the right people with the right character in your organization. Do they align with your values? And if they don't, it doesn't mean they're bad. This means they're misaligned and they're better situated perhaps somewhere else. Second, I think, is to assess are the passions and talents and desires and dreams and fears of these people, are they matching a job that your organization has you know, funding for, right? And that's a kind of a no-brainer. And like you said, sometimes we're fitting square pegs and round holes, and that will crush someone's spirit, their self-esteem, their self-worth, their self-confidence, right? It's, no, it's bound to end bad. I think right. what happens is people get entrenched in their jobs, and they don't have enough courage or stamina to disrupt themselves. You know, The science shows that most people have about a three-year attention span for any one job. If they're lucky, they can fulfill their career inside of their organization. But I think to that point, a leader's role is to also help your people disrupt themselves, to move on, challenge their skills, and decide should you be in or should you be out. Place the right people in the right roles also addresses your own self. Are you in the right role as a leader? One of my coaches, Denise, told me something I think profound. She said, there comes a time in everyone's career when you've given 90% of what you have to give your organization and you've taken from them 90% of what they have to offer you. And the last 10%, either way, just isn't worth it. And I think that's a great piece of advice, right? Are, are your listeners and viewers at yeah. you know, 70% or 180%? Is it time to question, are you in the right role as well? What about, what about um, this, this facet of um, you know, leading difficult conversations? So. Yeah. You'll find from our listeners that, you know, one of the things that they're most challenged by is they, they, they are having these issues of inclusion in the workplace, but nobody really knows how to talk about them. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and frankly, if it's a difficult conversation, we tend to shy away from it anyway, because who wants to start or end their day or anything in between yeah. with, with a very difficult conversation that doesn't necessarily have to be had. So what is, what, what, what is your advice about leading difficult conversations? Yeah, I think most of them do need to be had, right? If you're a leader who cares about and loves your people, love appropriately, right? Every culture is different. The best gift you can give someone 
is insight on one of their blind spots. We all have them, right? You have them, I have them. We're not as handsome or punctual or intelligent. Our breath doesn't smell as good. You get the point, right? We're not as collaborative. We've all got these blind spots. And beyond your spouse or your partner or your perhaps your best friend, your leader can be the person that can really sit down and have a diplomatic, courageous, high, considerate conversation with you. Now, I think most of your subscribers and listeners are probably quite adept at this because they're probably quite sophisticated when it comes to the sensitivities of differences and people's you know, proclivities. But it's probably their job to be a coach to people like me who are business unit leaders that aren't heavily steeped because all of our strengths when overplayed can become weaknesses, can they not? One of my strengths, I'm going to guess like you because I, I know you a bit, is we have a bit of bravado, right? We don't, have, we don't shy away from a fight and we're pretty courageous and we, we speak what's on our mind. That's a great leadership skill to have. The problem is when you're having a difficult conversation with somebody else who may not have that same level of confidence you and I have or the same vocabulary, the same stamina, right? Or who knows what their journey was in life where they've been gun shy for that. We, right. can, we can run them over, right? We can actually damage their self-esteem. So here's some tips. First off, it's your paradigm. Do you generally acknowledge that your intent is to help them? If your if your if your intent is right, you're going to get most of the rest right. Second, I think is role playing. It's so important. Join one of your colleagues in HR, the diversity inclusion department. That's maybe more uh, delicate. Um, you know, my CEO calls it, um, says, often encouraged me to be more delicate in my language. And I think there's some advice to that too, is role play it because you never know how your body language, your facial expressions are going to come across. I'm a, I'm a fairly intense person. That's not true. I'm an insanely intense person, right? And <laughs> I can be screaming and it's because I'm passionate, not mad. Now I don't scream at people other than my boys, but if you role play it, you get a feel for what's it like to be across the table from you, right? What's it like to be getting feedback from you? My wife will always say to me, well, could you say it nicer? I'm like, nice, what does that matter? I'm just giving the, giving the facts straight up. Not good for my marriage. Right. Role play it. And then here's the next thing I think is when you're in the conversation with someone, you have to move outside your comfort zone, right? So just declare it. Say, hey, Denise, I brought you into my office today because I want to have a high courage conversation with you. My intent is to help you see some of your blind spots that I think might be getting in the way of your brand here at the office. Now, quite frankly, I'm a little bit nervous about this because I may not have all the right words. I might not say it right. So I might ask for a do-over, but my intent is to help you. And what's said in here stays in here. I'd like to talk to you a bit about the meeting lap. You get the point, right? I, I think if you're just vulnerable, as a leader, admit that you may not have it all worked out, that your intent is to help this person overcome some of their blind spots. Most people are going to forget the words you used or the look on your face and accept that you're there to help them. Not every culture, not every organization, because you know everyone's got some different baggage, including me and including you. But nine times out of 10, I think that's pretty good advice. Yep, agreed. And people don't forget how you made them feel either, which is a kind of a good segue into this next question, which is, um, you know, in order to have difficult conversations, whether they're about inclusion-related issues or, frankly, anything else uh, as a manager or leader, you have to make it safe to tell the truth. Uh, what are some techniques yeah. to do that? Yeah, here's a couple of thoughts. I think 
you know, I, I'm writing a new book called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It's in the genre of the Mess to Success series. It's the second in a 10 series. And I was writing a, um, a passage this morning around uh, uh, the fact that sometimes in an organization, your religion can become your identity. It doesn't, it doesn't preclude you from being promoted. But, you know, at Franklin Covey, everybody knows Scott's Catholic, right? I live in Utah. We're a rare breed. And that's just fine. And, you know, and you're good friends. You kind of know who's not religious and who's, a, who's Jewish or Muslim, you know. It happens. I, I wasn't aware if I was addressing it right. So I actually called up our thought leader on diversity inclusion. I called her up and I took a screenshot of the passage and I wanted her opinion on it because I wasn't quite sure if what I was saying was, you know, deleterious to the company's brand. And she was more than, she's, this is a, um, a, a, um, a, she's black and she's Latina from Puerto Rico. There's a name for her her um, identity racially, I, I, I don't know what exactly she, I think she calls herself, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to get into a, a, you get the point, right? We're mm -hmm. very good friends. She's a good coach to me. And she gave me some pointers and tips. My, my point around that is just uh, reach out to somebody else, right? If you're having a struggle, not quite sure what to say, reach out and talk to someone that might better represent the audience or the person you're speaking to. Most people will forgive your um, ignorance is right if they're well if they're well intended and such. Mm -hmm. Now to answer your question, make it safe to tell the truth. This is such a vital leadership skill, especially when you're dealing with high courage conversations of people of different profiles in you, right? Gender, gender or age or diversity of any kind. You have to make sure that other people see you as their champion, that you're non-threatening. So you have to assume that as the leader, most people are intimidated by you. Many people are not safe telling you the truth. And so when you're asking for feedback from someone else, or perhaps you're providing them feedback, I think this idea of declaring your intent is so important. And I love those words. Use those words. Denise, my intent, is to, my intent in this conversation is to better understand how you saw last week's staff meeting and talk about that kind of kerfuffle that seemed to happen with you and Jennifer. I'm not sure I've got it right, I know how I felt in the meeting. My intent is to understand how you saw it, because I'll bet how you intended it to happen isn't how it did happen. So can I just be quiet for a moment and kind of listen to what your intent is? Because my intent is to actually understand and help you. I don't think you can overuse that phrase. You probably can. But as you're making it safe for people to tell you the truth, you've got to lower the barrier, right? You've got to make it easier for people to tell you the truth, because most people will lie to you. Not because they're sociopaths or unethical. It's just, when's the last time you told your boss that her PowerPoint presentation was 40 slides too many, right? None. In most cultures, you'll create a career cul-de-sac for yourself. So as a leader, if you don't want to be lied to, then you got to lower the barrier and make it easy for people to give you feedback without refuting it, disputing it. Or, or, or say, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, Jim drives me crazy in meetings. So I always, no, 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 sorry. You got you to just not refute it and actually be sincere about taking it. I think the same, same applies, Denise, to giving feedback, right, is know your audience. Some people can handle it more courageously. Some need it more considerately. Some need it at a mutual um, location. Some need you to come around the table and sit with them, right? You have to know your audience. You can't have a one-style um, strategy for everybody. You can treat right. everybody equally and still treat them differently. So is it is the is the the sort of the fulcrum around which all things turn um, being being you know sure to de declare your intent basically ahead of time? 
You know, I think, I think it's a great insight you shared. I think lacking facts, people will be suspicious, right? People will ascribe intent to you if you haven't declared it. I, I, you know, one of my colleagues at Franklin Covey said something that I think is prophetic. His name is Blaine Lee. I'm going to repeat it twice because I think it's so prophetic. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I'm going to say it again. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I mean, think about that in your professional relationships, in your personal life. If you'll take the time, the maturity, exercise the courage to move outside of your comfort zone, share how you're feeling, share how you're seeing something, declare your intent to say, you know, gosh, it felt awkward in last week's project meeting. I'm not quite sure what was going on. My intent is to understand what your strategy was so I can be a good ambassador to you and also protect you from maybe injuring your brand in the future. Talk to you about what you were, what you were feeling. What did you see going on? That's a mm-hmm. good conversation, right? Yeah, I, I kind of feel, I kind of feel now that you're kind of one third referee, one third on my side and one third sort of agnostic. You just want to kind of learn, right? I didn't go into it with any pre-described assessment other than it was clear something was happening. Talk to me about it. Right. Everybody wants to work for that leader, right? Everyone wants to work for a leader exactly. that again, that doesn't mean that she or he is always your advocate. Doesn't mean they're loyal to you to a fault. It means that they're willing to assess and help you uncover what's going on and how can we make it right. Might take an apology. Might take a, a do-over. Most people are pretty forgiving when you come and acknowledge your share of the mess, so to speak. So Scott, my next question is around um, transformation. I mean, I think most um, leaders would agree that if a company's not transforming, um, it's it's dying. Basically, we're in a we're in a state of constant transformation as organizations and as as people. And and what that means is, and, and by the way, in a positive way, because we're hoping that our clients are transforming through a more inclusive culture. So I'm not trying to make it seem like all arduous and there's no payoff. I mean, the idea is that there is a payoff, but nevertheless, you still, you know, as, as managers and leaders, we have to lead through change. Any advice on leading through change? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, the adage, the cliche that changes the new normal is, you know, is in all of our vernaculars now. Um, People tend to love change, Denise, when it's their idea and they don't when it's somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've been right there, right? I, I've been the kind of leader that, you know, this too shall pass or I'll wait this out or, or grind the change to a halt because I could with my stamina or title or budget. But I think as leaders, it, it's a competency, right? It's a leadership competency to be able to embrace and lead through change. But change is an emotional process. And when leaders, w- whether your change is, you know, building a more diverse or inclusive culture, whether your change is merging or acquiring a new organization with a competing culture, whatever your change is, all that's very real. It's an emotional process. And the more you recognize that change is emotional for everybody, the better leader you'll be. I think there is great risk in a lot of leaders that try to protect their team from change, which inherently maybe at the conscious level is probably a a good thing, right? Because you're trying to keep your, your team from being, you know, pulled back and forth. The problem with the leader that tries to protect their team from change is when the change comes and it's not going away, not going away, your team's not nimble enough. They're not ready enough for it. They haven't been prepared for 
adapting to the change previously. So don't fall into that trap, which might seem wise at the surface to protect or inoculate your team from change. No, get them in there, get them nimble, get them flexible, get them used to the fact that change is, you know, constant, right? Dr. Covey used to say the three constants in life are change, principles, and choice. So when leaders recognize that change is an emotional process, and for themselves as well, they do a couple of things. One is they recognize, in some cases, the need to compartmentalize the change, how they feel about it. Take it, take it and put it aside. Don't let your opinion, your cataract, metaphorically, of the change cloud how you should be doing your job. So I, I find that sometimes I have to literally just metaphorically put aside, compartmentalize how I feel about the change and go do my job. Doesn't mean I become a sycophant, right? Or I kiss up or any of that, right? It's just my job is to go get it done, ask questions, get clear on it. But the converse is true too. Recognize that your team members also are going through some emotions. They have a lot of questions. The more you can tell them the why behind the what, is gonna help them make it a less emotional time. And everyone may not come on board at the same time. So at some point, you know, get on the train, the train's left the station, right? But I think when you recognize that everyone's gonna come at it in somewhat a bit of a correlation to how they learned about it, how it impacts them, what their own fears may or may not be. I learned once of a, of a, a, a colleague, she happens to be a female, her gender is irrelevant, but for some reason when she was out for the day, the company moved her desk and her office around and she came back and it was like a debilitating um, result. And I guess, I guess as a consequence, she shared later that she'd moved, I don't know, 20 something times as a military brat and it had a massive impact, right? It was a small change that no one had any idea. They moved her desk like, I don't know, five feet or something and it had a really emotional impact on her. So I think to your point, change is constant. You know, a leader's job is to, you know, be nimble enough to recognize Everything is in flux, hopefully not your values or your mission or your purpose, but beyond that, it's kind of fair game. And as you look to help your team members deal with it, be gentle with them. Recognize there's going to be some natural emotional responses and kind of move them through, you know, the change process. Makes total sense. I remember too, just moving on to another subject um, that you um, – I remember reading a chapter in your book uh, about allowing others to be smart. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, without, you know, I'm not going to smooth the path for you, but, I, you know, I've always felt that this is a big part of inclusivity, but I want to hear your take on it. It absolutely is. I, without being, um, using hyperboles, I had an epiphany. I'm 51. I'm much older than you. A year ago. <laughs> A year ago at 50, I had an epiphany. I read Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers. I think it's an extraordinary book, especially for professionals in yep. inclusion. Liz is a dear friend of mine. Yeah, she mine endorsed too. my book as well. Yep. And in this book, Liz says some, some, some simple but amazing insights where you know, your job is not to be the genius in the room, but rather the genius maker of others. Yep. And, and I tell you, Denise, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed to admit. I'm actually quite willing to admit it now is I thought my job as the chief marketing officer was in fact to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the most educated, the most well-read, well read, the most nimble, the most everything, right? That was my job. And as a consequence, I subconsciously hired people who I thought were not as smart as me. I mean, like I, I don't think it was 
conscious. Otherwise, that probably is a clinical diagnosis. But I think I was so threatened. I was so fearful of being exposed as not being an expert in, you know, Google Analytics and SEO and marketing automation and web design and customer interface and UX and all that and everything else, direct mail. You get it, right? And how yeah. can I possibly be an expert on all of that? But I thought that was my job. So I did not go out and hire the world's expert at email design or the world's expert at SEO. I heard people who were competent, but in my eyes weren't more competent than me for fear they would expose me as being a fraud or a poser. I mean, how insane. But you know, I don't think I'm that unique. I think a lot of us in our roles think wrongly that our job is to be the genius in the room. Our job is to be the smartest person in the, person in the room. It's not true. And I, and I did our company, our employees, our clients, our shareholders a disservice. Now, I did a lot of good things that outweigh this. But here's what I learned. My job is to be the best possible, Denise, at recruiting and retaining talent. My job is to check my ego and get the best possible people into the company, step out of their way, cut through the red tape, let them shine beyond me, let them say things in meetings that I have to, as their boss, say, now, what does that acronym mean? Now, what's the difference between Instagram and Pinterest and how would we use those and be comfortable saying that? Right. And so fortunately for me, I learned it when I was 51 not 61 or 71, but it's probably my biggest leadership lesson, especially for those professionals in diversity and inclusion roles that might be coaching, you know, rocks for brains managers like me to say, people will quit the genius leader. Everyone wants to feel smart. Can your people feel smart in your presence? Do you dominate the conversation? Do you suck all of the air? literally and metaphorically out of every meeting. Do you have the maturity? Do you have the continence to step back and not save the day, not share your you know, genius idea, and let somebody else come up with it as well too? Let their joke be as good as your joke or better. It takes some maturity. And for me, I'm embarrassed to admit, it took about 20-something years as leader of people to realize I was the genius in the room. I was not the genius maker. Now I, I now I built a lot of careers. So I'm quite proud of what I have done to lift women, to, to lift people of different ethnicities than mine. I have doubled and tripled people's salaries and incomes. I'm I'm actually a, a fairly good leader to work with on a lot of other scales. I believe that. On this one, I wasn't. All right, but live and learn, right? I yes, mean, obviously you 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 live to survive it and to write a book about it. So yes, that's, you know. That is called leveraging, you know, personal growth to 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 lead exponential growth. So my kudos go to oh, you. I, I'm the expert at leveraging personal growth. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. I got a PhD in that. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So we're getting close to our, the yeah. end of our time together. Yeah. So I'm I'm just wondering, rather than sort of leading you down the garden path, um, yeah. I I'm just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to leave leaders with yeah. that I that yeah. I haven't yet asked you. You know, I. I'd love to. Thank you. I have, I have one, one thing I'd love to share. And I think this is a universal concept, regardless of your role. I, I'm very familiar uh, with the nature of your audience, and I hope I've spoken some to that today. I had the privilege of tutoring at one of the wisest people, men, ever to have lived in our generation, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, a man of impeccable character, um, totally congruent with what he wrote and said and, and, and how he behaved. That's so nice to hear. Oh, it's so true. I mean, the real deal. I get chills talking about it. You know, he passed seven years ago 
after a, a head injury from a bicycle accident in his 80th year. His legacy will never diminish in my mind. He taught me this concept, Denise, the difference between having an efficient mindset and an effective mindset. And I'll bet a lot of your listeners and viewers will relate to this, is that in this fast-paced world where it's not slowing down, many of us are very efficiency-minded. They're very productive. We like lists, check things off, get things done, do it fast, do it faster, do it faster, volume, volume, volume. And in some areas of our life, I think it's help, healthy, helpful to have what Dr. Covey called an efficiency mindset, right? Making your list. Heck, I'm at the Home Depot on Saturdays at 5 a.m., buying my marigolds. They're planted by six o'clock during the summertime, car wash by seven, tennis gear on by eight, right? Go, go, go. The problem with efficiency-minded people like me is we carry that strength over into our relationship with people where you need to be effectiveness mindset focused. With people, Dr. Covey said, slow is fast and fast is slow. So in our relationships and every facet of our role in life, parent, spouse, partner, friend, leader of people at work, slow down. When someone comes into your office, shut your laptop, take off your glasses, take your phone, turn it silent, turn it over. Sounds a bit techniquey in the beginning, and perhaps it is, but it'll become a habit. It's honor your people, revere your people by slowing down. Because in relationships, almost everything is done better slower. You know, I tell you, this efficiency mindset that I have is my biggest challenge in life. Because I like to treat my friendships, my colleagues, like I do raking the yard. Fast, quick, and kind of good enough. It doesn't mean that I inherently value you less than, than someone else does. It's just I have this kind of deeply entrenched mindset. Faster is better. Faster is not better. Better is better. And so I had to learn this. I have three boys, five, seven, and nine. And we live about two blocks from an ice cream parlor here in Salt Lake City. You can walk to it by the Capitol. And this summer, past summer, they want to go. They want to ride their bikes. Like, no, 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 I'll drive you there. Make it faster. And I would rush them along. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? This shouldn't take as fast as possible. This should take as long as possible. Yeah. So my advice would be in all of your relationships, check your paradigm. Are you in an efficiency mindset or are you in an effectiveness mindset? And sometimes, you know what? Meetings can be efficient. Some phone calls can be efficient. Some conversations can be efficient. But let me leave your listeners and viewers with that kind of balance. Make sure you're in the right mindset for the right situation. Efficient or effective? Yep. And, I, and, and it's, it's so interesting because um, it, it, it really is effective to make time for those relationships. And you're absolutely right that it's kind of the law of diminishing returns when you're trying to be efficient, you're, you're multitasking or what have you. I frankly don't think it's hokey at all. I think the concept of paying full attention is probably one of the biggest um, hallmarks of, of inclusion that you can give another human being. Well said. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a leadership competency. That's not meant to be cliche-ish, yeah. right? Is every one of us is falling victim to information overload and our own you know, kind of rewiring of our brains to crave it. And your legacy is not how did that project go? Your legacy is how did that employee, that colleague, feel fulfilled? Was their voice heard? Were they validated? Did they contribute? Did they build their 401k? 
right? <laughs> and they build a retirement plan and they put their kid through college. That's your legacy. So I'm going to do a little bit of a recap to tell you what I've learned so that you can test my ability to pay full attention. Uh, or at least l l let me just say that I'm going to recap through my lens, uh, what I learned about going from management mess to leadership success, maybe you know, through, the, uh, through the lens of inclusion, but just generally as a competency. Um, first of all, I learned to, um, to declare my intent, um, especially when I'm having difficult conversations that I'm going to get a lot more latitude if I do that, because even if I make mistakes, if people can see my authenticity, it's going to make a big difference. So that's, that's one of my takeaways. My second um, takeaway is to place the right people in the right roles. And if those people are already in roles, to consider an adaptation of those roles, job description, initiatives that they're assigned to, stretch assignments, um, even promotions based on getting them, supporting them, I should say, to work within their zone of genius based upon their individual competencies being correctly aligned with the particular job or job skills involved. So that, that was my second takeaway. How am I doing so far? A plus. Keep going, Yay. Girl. Okay. <laughs> I learned um, in terms of leading difficult conversations, and I'm going to add that a little bit into declaring my intent as one of the, you know, one of the caveats to that, but not to be afraid to have them. That uh, in, in particular with regard to the conversations related to inclusion, that if, again, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and seek uh, to understand before we are understood. I don't think you said it exactly that way, but that's what I took away from it. Nice recap. Okay, that we're going to be able to have better conversations no matter how difficult they are. Um, I learned that it's important uh, to make it safe uh, to tell the truth um, uh, within the context of difficult conversations, but just in general to be able to um, create that energy around the conversation. Um, I learned that it's important to, um, to uh, allow others to be smart, to, um, to be a genius maker rather than the smartest person in the room. And by the way, I think a lot of, a lot of us are guilty of that. We, it, it's not really guilty. We're really trying to contribute. We're, we feel like we have a tremendous amount of expertise. We've come a long way. We're very educated. We have all this life experience. And so our intention is good, right. um, but, but we're not realizing that we might be managing the situation, but we're not leading the situation. So. Um, so in allowing others and being the facilitator of others being smart. And I also learned um, that we're in a constant state of transition as organizations and as people, and that part of the competency that we really need to work on is being able to lead through change um, effectively, not necessarily efficiently, but effectively by creating those um, relationships and really um, focusing on them. So how did I do? How are my listening skills? I'm so impressed. I've worked <laughs> myself out of a future interview. Nicely done. <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed that. I, um, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank everyone who's listened in. Um, and, um, and Scott, I hope you will consider, you know, coming back with your next book, because I know this is, this is not the first, and it's certainly not going to be the last. So keep in touch with us so that we can um, keep in touch with you. I'm honored. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for the All platform. Right. All right. And to our listeners, we'll see you next time. This is the Leading Inclusively podcast signing off.